Good morning. Good morning, church. I hear this is the more caffeinated service, so I'm expecting more of a reaction than that. Good morning, church. Thank you. Thank you. I only had a couple cups, so I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Um, It's great to be with you. Uh, I I travel around, as Torin said, speaking in different places, and um, I heard last night that something went on here in Grand Rapids that I missed out on. So when people say, what is a band that you would have loved to have seen in person that don't tour anymore? Alabama. Okay, so I'm like showing my, (laughs) and there were a few people who went. So in the prayer for service this morning, they were telling me that Alabama actually performed here last night, and I missed it. So I was sad about that, but then it gave me the opportunity to tell you some lyrics from an Alabama song, which fit into our series, okay? It's not even a crowbar, like they really fit. So um, so Alabama is, a, is an old band, it's a country band. I don't agree with all of their lyrics about the South, but I really love them growing up because my dad used to play the song Mountain Music and that was one of my favorites. Um, and just so you know, since you can't pin down my music taste because uh, probably before the pandemic, I was teaching at a church in Florida and Boys to Men was playing, another group I've always wanted to see in person and I went and saw them, so you know. Anyway, but Alabama has a song you may have heard uh, in a series thinking about hurry, based on this book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which really comes from a quote by Dallas Willard, a famous theologian and writer on spiritual practices. And he said, there's nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. So if you're just catching up with the series, that's what we've been thinking about of your spiritual life that can keep you connected to God. And that's really the whole point of any of these spiritual practices, to keep us connected to God. So I'm starting a series of four weeks. I won't be here for four weeks, although that would be fun. I see some snow, I think, right, if I stay? It's not snowing yet in D.C. Um, But the next four weeks, you'll be looking at a practice every week. So the practice that I'm looking at today is called Solitude and Silence. Solitude and Silence. And these are the four practices suggested by this book about how to eliminate hurry from our lives by trying out these different ways of practically connecting with God and with God's Spirit. So Solitude and Silence. Now, I was really excited. Torin always just tells me what I'm preaching on. You know, here's when you're arriving and here's what you're preaching on. And uh, so he told me I was speaking on this and I was really excited. Because sometimes, you know, I preach on something that that is a struggle for me in my own life, and it's like mostly God ministering to me as well as to the people I'm talking to. Well, this one is actually a really healthy part of my walk with God, and I love talking to people about solitude and silence. Because even though I'm a fast-talking extrovert, as you can tell, I love people. I get up in the morning, post coffee, and I'm like, where are the people? Let me at them. How many can I meet today on the airplane as I fly to Michigan? You know, that's me. You're afraid. It's okay. You can talk to me after. It's okay. Um, I'm an extrovert. I love solitude and silence. I discovered this practice myself, known God for a long time, but when I was in grad school, I had a mentor, and she invited me to this retreat center. She said, let's go to this retreat center for a silent retreat. And I thought, ooh, that sounds terrible. Like, I can't talk? No no talking. Like, a little talking because you're there? No talking? What about during meals? Still no talking? Like, I was like, how is this going to work? And I loved it. Because I actually found when I quieted my soul, when I didn't surround myself with people, because if there's a person there, it's going to be hard not to talk. We had our own little bedrooms, and we met at meals, but we still ate in silence. But I found there was something actually very freeing about it. 
Some of you who are introverts are like, yeah, that's my life. I love that. (laughs) But for me, it was a new practice. I've never tried it before, and it really connected me to God. And so to this day, it's still an important practice for me. It's not always an overnight retreat. You know, at a place that makes really good food, and I recommend if you go on retreat, find a place that makes good food. Um, But it could just be 30 minutes in the morning. It could just be an hour on a Sunday if I have more space. Torin, I actually uh, texted him this week and said, hey, I want to talk to you about a couple things I'm going to say in my sermon. And he was like, sorry, I can't. I'm on retreat. (laughs) And he was going on silent retreat for a couple of days with a couple of the other guys here. And I encourage you, if you want to try out being in silence, you can do it with other people also. That's a myth about solitude and silence. You have to like be alone and be with no one. But you can be with other people and you can also be silent with them and with God. So solitude and silence is what we're talking about today. We hear a lot today about mindfulness, right? And some of you may be thinking, this sounds a lot like mindfulness. I just read a book about it, or we practice this at my office, or whatever. Well, mindfulness is it's a similar idea, but it's different origins. So a lot of mindfulness and a lot of um, meditation comes from more of a Buddhist background. And in the Buddhist background, the point of the practice is actually to clear your mind of everything. Clear your mind of self, clear your mind of everything else. Well, Christians have been practicing silence, solitude, and stillness for centuries. But the Christian practice is different in that you're trying to clear your mind of some of those anxieties and worries and give them to God, but you're trying to make space to be with God. So it's not an empty mind you're going for. You're going actually more for being in the presence of God, being with God in that moment. But Christians have been doing this for centuries, so there's a million books I could give you that have been written over the years about how this has been such an important part of the way that people follow Jesus and the way that they meet with God. And in fact, Jesus did this. So if you're like, Aaron, I don't care about books, I don't care about whatever, just tell me what Jesus did. Well, Jesus often went away to a quiet place, right? You've read those scriptures. Jesus went away to a quiet place. The shortest sermon that I ever heard, it was in a college ministry. It was when I was in college. I was home for the summer at my church. And this guy got up and he walked to the front of the stage. It's probably 150 college students. And he went, Jesus went away to a solitary place and prayed. Do you have a place to go and be alone with Jesus? And then he walked off. That was literally his whole talk for the whole night. Um, I don't know if he just wasn't prepared. Um, Maybe he was making an impact because I still remember today. The question was, Jesus did this. Jesus went away to be with the Father. Jesus needed that time to be in silence and have space with God, to hear from God. And if it was good enough for Jesus, she'll be good enough for us, right? So let's turn to Mark. Mark chapter 1. There's so many places in the Gospels we could go to find Jesus getting alone to a solitary place. But let's look at one of the first that we ever hear about. Mark 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom and says, You are my Son in whom I'm well pleased. God's love for us And his pleasure in us is because we're his children, not because of what we can produce for God. And I really had this on my heart as I was preparing this sermon that there's some of you this morning that have felt that struggle this week, that have fallen into this idea that God only loves you for what you can produce in your life for God, or the ways that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. But you are actually loved if this morning you are in Christ, you are loved because you are a son or daughter of God already. So Jesus is is loved. And then at once it says the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, 
being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So we usually think of the wilderness as like, this is a really terrible place. But as we look through the Gospels, we'll realize that this word wilderness really means a solitary place. There was a desert near where Jesus was, so it was a desert sort of an environment. But actually, as we look through the Gospels, we see that when Jesus goes to a solitary place, it actually strengthens him. It actually makes him stronger. And sometimes we might have that false dichotomy in our own minds that if we take time out to be with God, it's only when we're having a bad day or something's gone wrong or we're really mad at God and we got to take it up with him, you know? We needed a couple minutes to just shout at God and that's a fine time to talk to God. But actually being with God in solitude and silence is meant to be a place of strength. And it was for Jesus, a place of such strength that he had his hardest temptations there in the wilderness. But he was prepared to answer So he comes out of it and he says, declaring to the world, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And we see this pattern as well in scripture, that Jesus goes away to a solitary place. And when he comes back, he has such clarity about who he is. Such clarity about what his purpose is. Who he's meant to be. He comes out saying, you know what? This is what I'm here for. Repent. Kingdom of God is now. Repent and believe. And I think this is also something that solitude and silence provide us with as followers of Christ. They help us center ourselves on God. When we're running around otherwise in life and we're we're hurried all around, we can often feel that compass moving sideways. And all of a sudden the, the compass becomes what kind of money we have how wealthy we are, and that becomes the thing that starts making all of our decisions. Or maybe it goes over here, it's a person, it's a relationship, or a child, or a spouse, or a boss, and they're actually the center that starts, we start reacting to. And being away in solitude and silence allows us, as it did with Jesus, to come back to actually who who is our center, and that's the Father. Who is our center, and that's God, and allows us to live out of that rather than living out of our fears or our anxieties. So Jesus goes on later in Mark. Jesus has actually been healing the whole town. And it says the whole town brought people to him. So he's been very busy, okay? So he went away to the wilderness. He came back to Capernaum. It's about a day, but it sounds like it's about five days, but it's really one day in the life of Jesus. And it says here, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, dude, everyone's been looking for you. No, they didn't say dude. Uh, But they said, everyone's been looking for you. And you get the sense the disciples are like, oh my gosh, we've been trying to hold off the crowd. You know, what are you doing, Jesus? And he replies, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So again, Jesus goes to the wilderness comes back for a busy day to Capernaum, does a lot of the work, and the disciples are sort of like, Jesus, you know, you're so distracted. But after he comes out of that time of prayer, he knows exactly what he's here for. He said, no, I'm in the right spot, and we're now going to go here, and we're going to go now do this. For some of us, the, the more hurried we get, the busier we get, the less we pray. But there was a great missionary uh, who, whose prayer life I've always admired who said that the, the busier he got, the more hurried he got, the more he prayed. The more more meetings on his calendar, the more time he extended his prayer time. 
So there's kind of a difference between silence, solitude, and stillness. People throw out those words, so I want to throw them out here. And I want you to think with me in this moment about which one is more challenging for you, because I think each person finds one of these more challenging than the others. So first, there's silence. Silence is sometimes the easiest one to get, in the sense that it's just turning off the noise, going maybe to be alone to a quiet place, maybe turning on noise-canceling headphones, whatever it may be, getting actual external noise, turning that off. So for some, silence is one of the easiest things to find. St. Augustine said, entering into silence is entering into joy, which I think is spoken like a true introvert. (laughs) Entering into silence is entering into joy. What he's saying is there is a gift here in silence, if you can find it. So for some, this is actually quite hard to find any silence. If you're, if you're maybe a mom or you work in a loud place or whatever it is, this may feel hard. But for some, this is the easier thing to, to gain is that external noise, quieting the external noise. Secondly is solitude. So solitude is the actual being alone with God. And solitude is different than isolation. Often when we're suffering or we're going through a difficult time, or even if we're struggling with God and we're, we have lots of questions and we're even angry at God, we isolate ourselves. We go to be alone. Well, that's not the same as solitude because solitude is going to go be with God. It's going to be alone but with God. Some people, solitude is the hardest part. As I said, as an extrovert, sometimes that's the hardest part, is the, okay, I'm going to go be alone. Well, gosh, that sounds boring. Um, But I can tell you that as a follower of Jesus who's practiced solitude for a long time, this is actually the time in my life I feel the least lonely. The time that I feel the least lonely is sitting quietly with God because I sense God's presence. And I know that the promises about I will leave you, I will never forsake you, are more real in those moments than in any other moment of my discipleship journey. Henry Nouwen said this, Without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Those are strong words. Those are strong words. And maybe even as you hear it, you think, ooh, yeah, but solitude is hard. Well, it's a practice. Like any of these things, they're called spiritual practices because no one's born doing them well or finding them easy to do. It's a practice, and the more we do it, the easier it becomes. The more it becomes a rhythm of our life, which was part of the purpose of that rule of life, the more we're intentional about it, the more it becomes, the the easier it becomes. But this makes sense, doesn't it? That you can't do spiritual life without solitude. And he means solitude with God, time with God. And it makes sense, because if you're married, think about if you never spent time with your spouse. Some of you are like elbowing the spouse, like that's our life right now. Uh, But let's say you never spent time with your spouse. What kind of a relationship would that be? You'd feel disconnected, right? You wouldn't know what was on their mind. They wouldn't know what's on your mind. And in fact, you probably have a lot more conflict because you're not spending that time connecting with each other. And this goes for children too, or friendships or roommates. When you're not spending time together, you're not connected. Well, it's the same with God. Why would it be any different with, with our heavenly father? We need to spend time with God so that we can hear what's on God's mind and God can hear what's on our mind. So that's solitude. And lastly, stillness. And here again, I'm going to give a shout out to those introverts. A lot of introverts will say, oh, Erin, I'm so good at this in my spiritual life. This is something I practice all the time. And uh, that's because solitude's pretty easy, okay? Yeah, get alone. That's my dream, you know. Hooray for the pandemic. I was alone the whole time. Um, 
Or silence, you know, yes, will people stop talking to me? That's my best, you know? But stillness is actually the hardest part, I find, for people who have a busy internal voice. And a lot of you are those people that live more in your head than verbally outside. And so the quieting that's hard, the noise that's the loudest is that internal conversation. And so when you get to solitude and silence, for a lot of us, this is the part that's intimidating about being alone with your thoughts, is what is going to come up? What is, what noise is going to come up? And how do I quiet the internal noise? And that's where stillness comes in as a challenge and as a spiritual practice. How do I quiet the internal noise? How do I make space for another voice that's louder than my voice of anxiety or my voice of fear? Whatever it is, the conversation that went on today and I'm thinking about it and what I should have said or shouldn't have said. Or maybe even the good things going on in your life. If you've ever been in love, you you find that you can't think about anything else. So maybe it's a joyful thing that's in the conversation in your mind. But the quieting of that internal voice is one of the challenges of the spiritual practice of stillness. And the enemy wants to keep that noise going. The enemy wants that noise to keep going so that we won't hear the voice of God. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's this um, allegory, it's this story about imagining what the devil and his demons that work for him are doing against the life of a Christian. And so in this story, he says that he, the head demon is called Screwtape. So Screwtape calls the sort of devil's realm, the place they want to bring all the Christians. He says, it's a kingdom of noise. And he claims, we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. The whole goal of us distracting people from hearing the voice of God. If we can distract them from that voice, if we can create enough noise, then they'll be lost. And don't we know it, that the enemy of our souls is always trying to do two things. Divide us from God and divide us from one another. Divide us from God and divide us from one another. I often think he's like like magnets, like opposite magnets. You know how if you put two together and they're opposite, they push away? And I think the enemy's always trying to set us up into a place where instead of a magnet that draws itself to God and to community, the enemy likes to reverse those poles so that we're constantly pushed away from each other. So it's a battle. It's actually a spiritual battle, solitude and silence. And so that's why I like to call them not spiritual practices, but resistance practices for resisting evil. So I'm indebted to this man named John Swinton who created this phrase. He wrote a great book, and he talked about how resistance practices are the way that we respond to suffering and evil in the world. He says, we don't necessarily need an explanation of why God allows evil, although we would all like one, right? (laughs) But he says, joining with the early church, we look instead for the ability to live with the unanswered questions. Isn't that tough? To live with the unanswered questions as people of faith. To keep going in the midst of what feels like a world that is out of control, still believing that God is in control. So he says these resistance practices, whether it's prayer or scripture or solitude and silence, he says they enable people to persevere and sustain their faith in the midst of evil until the time comes when there will be no more suffering and tears. He says, resistance practices are divinely inspired gestures of cooperation through which human beings seek to participate faithfully in the redemptive mission of Jesus. In other words, he says, it's our little way of staying connected to God (laughs) in the midst of our world that's trying to divide us. 
I just finished my doctorate in the pandemic, you know? Everyone has those list of weird things they'd learned to do in the pandemic. <laughs> and I finished my doctorate, and it was looking at theology of suffering, looking at these questions of evil, but from the perspective of Christians in Kenya. So Christians in a particular uh, informal settlement, what used to be called a slum, in an area of Nairobi called Mathari. And my question was this. I'd traveled a lot in the developing world. I spent a lot of time cross-culturally in other communities, and I was always so inspired by Christians living in some of the poorest parts of the world, going through so much physical injustice every day, violence, and yet believing that God was good. And I wanted to know, what could I learn from brothers and sisters in Christ in these communities about how to stay resilient in my faith in the midst of suffering? Do they ask the same questions I ask about suffering? Are they praying in a different way that's more effective? Like, somebody give me the secret key, you know? <laughs> what can I learn from Christians in this other place? And as I looked into these questions of suffering, I realized that we ask different questions of suffering today than Christians used to ask. So typically, our questions today, well, they often start with, why me? <laughs> why me, God? Why is this happening to me? But then we ask, where does suffering come from? How do I get rid of it? Why do you allow evil? A lot of these questions are about control. How do I problem solve? How do I rid the world of suffering and evil? What can I do to stop it? Well, interestingly, these are very post-enlightenment questions. So in the Enlightenment period, the idea of science coming to the forefront, that we could solve every problem, that everything was measurable, that we actually had no limits as human beings, that we could push through all of those limits. And Torin already talked about this in one of his sermons in this series, about how part of what's hard with hurry is that we, we have this idea that we don't have limits, <laughs> that we can do everything in the small amount of time we have. And most of us are even sad there's only 24 hours. You know, if you just gave me one more hour, there's so much more that I could get done. We have this tendency to push the limits and even be in denial, right, of what those limits are. And that's a very enlightenment perspective. But the early church in the New Testament, they asked very different questions about suffering and evil. In fact, if you looked at the scriptures, they asked two questions. Two main questions. How do we persevere in suffering? So not how do I get rid of it, where is it coming from, why me, but how do I persevere in it? How do I just live faithfully well through it? And you remember Paul talking about persevering, persevering. How do I persevere in suffering? And the second question that they asked was how do I resist evil? Not where does it come from, how do I control it, but how do I resist it? What's my part in this situation? What's my part in my own journey of following God? How do I resist evil? And resistance practices are one of these ways. This is one of the ways we push away the darkness. I just started working at uh, International Justice Mission again. I used to work for them before, and they're the largest uh, anti-slavery organization in the world. But they're also a Christian organization. They're a human rights organization and a Christian one. And so we actually have spiritual practices we do as a part of our job. So I'm, you know, an employee at a, you know, several thousand person organization. We're all over the world, but we all have the same practices, whether you're in Guatemala or Kenya or Washington, D.C. And one of those is that in the morning for 30 minutes, you spend time with God as a part of your workday. So you're paid. It's part of your workday. You take 30 minutes and you spend time with God, each individual person. And then once a day, usually at 11 o'clock for us in D.C., everyone stops and they come together and they pray for what's going on in the world. And people look at this and they're like, that is an hour a day you're giving your employees to not be productive or not protect someone from violence, not rescue someone from trafficking, not free someone from slavery in India. 
But the founder, Gary Haugen, says when he first began this work of this organization, he knew it was too much for him. There's more people in slavery today than combined in all the rest of the history of our world. So how is he going to be a part of this? But how is he going to do it as a Christian? And God said to him, the power is going to come from prayer. The power is going to come from where any power comes from to fight evil, from being with God. And so he started these rhythms of spiritual practice. We get a day, a year to go have in solitude, a day of solitude and stillness to spend with God, to remember where the real power for any of this freedom is coming from. Spiritual practices, these resistance practices, may just seem like something you do. Maybe you take 10 minutes of silence, but you are actually pushing back the darkness. You are actually changing the pole of that magnetic force in your life. In Mark 6, uh, Jesus gathers together his disciples, and he says, you've done a lot of work, you've been traveling around, and you're really uh, tired, and so go, let's go take some time to rest. And then all of a sudden, they go to rest, right? And what happens? The crowd follows them. <laughs> the crowd says, ooh, you know, where are you going? We're going too. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, okay, well, we need to minister to them. So he teaches them, then he feeds the 5,000, and then he says, okay, right, remember that thing we were doing? Yeah, we're going back to go be by ourselves. <laughs> and Jesus goes off and prays. For Jesus, that was a rhythm of, of going to be with God, then getting what he needed from God, then going back out to the people. But I love that story because that's what happens often when we try to do any of these practices. We try to get time with God, and we're like, okay, I've got 10 minutes on the clock. Kids are gone to school, you know, and something breaks in your house. You know, there's a plumbing issue, and all of a sudden, you know, that time with God is set aside. Or maybe you think, I'm going to get to the office 30 minutes before, and I'm going to sit in my office, and I'm going to be able to have time with God, and on your way, you get a flat tire. Or your boss sees you as you walk in and starts a conversation with you. Or you get a ping on your Apple Watch and all of a sudden, you know, you, oh, I got to go answer that email. For all of us, it's a challenge. And so when I did my research in Mathari, one of the things I was so encouraged by is this community that lives in an area of three miles, square miles, with more than 500,000 people. So this is a dense area. Maybe five to ten people living in one room together as a family. This is a noisy place. Even as I walk the streets of Mathari, there's no plumbing, no electricity. So it's a very poor place. It's a place with very few resources. But it's also a place where kids go to school. And they laugh and they tease each other. It's a place where Christians are just doing life together. They're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And one of the things I was amazed by when I did my research there, I expected that I was going to find that they pray, that they fast, that they worship together. But one of the spiritual practices I didn't expect was to find that they have silence, that they have a value for stillness. And I thought, well, where do you find stillness in the middle of a, you know, informal settlement like this? And they all had different answers of how they did it. One woman found a tree. There was a tree just outside the, uh, the busiest road area, and she went and sat under this tree. So I sit under the tree, and I listen to God. And they were all different denominations. Some of them were more Pentecostal. Some of them were used to noise. Noise was a part of their worship. They all pray at the same time, or they worship really loud, and the louder you sing, the more spiritual it is. You know, there's a lot of that going on. But even they said, but we love silence. Because at some point, you got to shut up and listen to God, this pastor told me. <laughs> and maybe that's the word for you this morning. Sometime you just got to shut up and listen to God at some point. Solitude and silence, it changes us. One of the most beautiful ways I've ever heard this described was by a, a writer, a spiritual writer, 
one of the greats, Howard Thurman. If you've never read his writings, I really encourage you to. This is a great place to start, Meditations of the Heart. Um, is one of his collections. He was a poet as well as a theologian, as well as a spiritual father for so many people, including Dr. Martin Luther King. And he talks about it as centered down. That's what he talks about when you get alone with God. And as I said, you get back to that center, that center of who God is. And he talks about the beautiful exchange that we make with God when we bring the busyness and God exchanges us with the rest. So here's what he says. How good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see oneself pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic. Our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences, while something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity we seek, ere the quiet passes, a fresh sense of order in our living, a direction, a strong, sure purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning in our chaos. We look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kinds of people we are, and the questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? Where are we trying to go? Where do we put the emphasis and where are our values focused? For what end do we make sacrifices? Where is my treasure? What do I love most in life? What do I hate most in life? And to what am I true? Over and over the questions beat in upon the waiting moment. As we listen, floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there's a sound of another kind, a deeper note, which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered. Our spirits refreshed. And we move back into the traffic of our daily round with the peace of the eternal in our step. How good it is to center down. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's the exchange that I have found in stillness and solitude and silence. The exchange of the noisy traffic of my mind with the peace of the eternal in my step. So I want to give us a minute to practice silence. Some of you are like, oh, this is awkward. There's people in here and noises and da 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 da. And that's totally okay. You're going to hear someone move next to you. Someone's going to cough. Someone's going to sneeze. Someone's going to, I don't know, who knows. A baby's going to cry. It's all fine. Um, but I want us to have this experience that it's possible, even with a minute of silence, to receive something from God of his peace. Now, when you start, I find, to take silence, to put yourself in a position of silence, I do find your mind, wa your mind wanders, right? Don't fight it. So you're going to have a thought across your head. It's going to be like, oh, did I make that reservation for lunch? <laughs> it's like, oh, man, I didn't eat enough for breakfast. Um, and you're going to see it. And what I like to do is think about it like a boat. Just picture like a boat sailing by. You know, don't fight it. Don't be like, stop thinking of other things. Be spiritual. Because um, that's not effective. That doesn't work. So just think of it like a sailboat. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that later I need to go to the grocery store and buy bananas. And you just, like, let it sail by. And then another one will come by. Don't stress about that. Just let that go. 
And then there may be a yacht that comes by, you know, or a Titanic of anxiety and worry. And that's okay. You give that to God. God, you see the Titanic. I see the Titanic. It's not crashing yet. We'll just like let it sail by. And I find there's more and more space to actually hear the voice of God in between the ships and the sailboats. Fewer come eventually as you practice. And it is a practice. It is a practice that gets easier with time. So I'm going to give us a minute, and I want to just give you a little experience of this. This is just a brief experience of it. Um, but so just get comfortable. You know, maybe you need to move around. Maybe you're a little stiff from, you know, listening to this fast talker talk for a long time. Don't worry. I'm still on time. Um, so get comfortable. And maybe you need to, like, you know, like stretch your shoulders out here, you know. Take a deep breath. <sighs> breathe out. Excellent, excellent breathing. And don't forget to breathe while we're in stillness, too. Sometimes people hold their breath. It's a really funny thing that people do with their bodies, but, like, don't worry about that. So, comfortable. I like to close my eyes because I am distracted by looking at other people, so you may want to close your eyes or stare at the ceiling or at your foot or whatever is helpful for you. And then what we're doing here is we're just emptying our minds of these things. We're handing them to God, and maybe for you it's, a, it's, it's helpful to picture something. Sometimes I actually picture like the throne room of God and I'm like walking up to Jesus to talk to him. And maybe I just bring him whatever's on my mind in that moment. And then I also say, well, God, what do you have to say to me? And I just wait and listen. All right? Easy peasy. There's no, there's no A's or F's in this situation. There's no right way to be with God in stillness or silence, okay? So we're just trying it out. Okay, so I'll pray for us and then I'm just going to give us one minute. All right. Lord, we thank you that you are present always with us, that you're here now. We thank you for the invitation to just quiet our hearts for a minute and be with you. So speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You all survived. Okay, let's, let's stand as I close this in prayer. For some of you, that may be the only moment of quiet you have today. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed that as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you invite us into your presence every day, that it's available to us 24-7. No VIP pass needed, but you're always there. We pray, Father, as we go out into busy weeks, busy holiday weeks, no less, God, help us to find space. Help us to find the two minutes each day or the extra hour on a vacation day, whatever it is, God, to sit and hear from you. And Lord, when we feel the emotions creeping up, the things we haven't noticed and all of a sudden have the space to notice, we hand those to you. We know, God, you're trustworthy enough to take all of those things and to replace them with your peace 
with your love and joy and patience, all the fruit of the Spirit, God. We thank you, Father, that you invite us into this space by grace. There's no sense of you're not doing enough for God or a sense that without silence that God doesn't love us. Lord, we just thank you that we're invited by grace to spend time with you, the author of our souls. So, Jesus, we pray you'd show us where this practice can fall in our lives. And we thank you, Father, that you're with us either way. In Jesus' name, amen.